It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Look ahead. Imagine more. Gain insight for your industry with forward-thinking advice from the professionals at Cohn Resnick. Is your business ready to break through? Find out more at ConeResnick.com slash Breakthrough. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business, we have a very special guest. His name is Jeff DeGraff, and he is known as a technician's technician. Uh, He has a storied career, most notably his time as the chief technician at Lehman Brothers, where he famously resigned pretty much the day of Lehman's all-time high. Jeff is now the founder and president and chief technical strategist of Renaissance Macro, better known as RenMac, which is really an interesting shop that combines both macro analysis and technical analysis. In fact, one of the things that makes Jeff so unique is the fact that he has both uh, a CFA and uh, a CMT, which means that he is uh, very schooled in both fundamental and technical analysis of of equities. And I think you'll find uh, his approach to be somewhat unique. The way RenMac was built to create its own unique database is something that not a lot of companies can, can lay claim to. Uh, and it's part of the reason that for the past decade or so, he's been named uh, one of the top and, and, in fact, has been ranked number one uh, by institutional investor for the space he covers. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Jeff DeGraff. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Jeff DeGroff. He is the chairman and head technical analyst at Renaissance Macro. He has quite the storied background. Started out at Merrill Lynch, was at Lehman Brothers for a number of years, where he was not only chief technician, but also on the firm's investment policy committee as a managing director. Moved to ISI in 2007 before launching his own firm in 2011, uh, he is both a CFA and a CMT charter holder, a member of the New York Society of Securities Analysts and the MTA. Uh, he has been number one ranked in Institutional Investor Magazine for the last 12 years, ranked as number one technical analyst for the last 11 years. And, and we know he's a great technician because he resigned Lehman Brothers literally the day of the stock's all-time high. Jeff DeGraff, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you for having me. So- I've been following your work for a number of years. I have a lot of friends who are technicians who who uh, have nothing but good things to say 
uh, about you. So let's jump right in to your background and talk a little bit about uh, what makes what you do a little different than the average technicians. You describe yourself as a macro analyst. What does that mean? Well, we, um, you know, we, we really pride ourselves on looking at the big picture. And, and within that, what I mean is currencies and, and bond markets and commodity markets, and then trying to put all the pieces together. I mean, I think the, the world's always a puzzle. That's why I love this business. It's a, it's a chess match, you know, and, and it's never, diff- it's, it's never the same, it's never day the to same, day. right. And so it's really, a, an, a, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's upon us, um, you know, uh, this weekend, great example. I go through about a thousand charts on the weekend, right? And I put a pile of charts um, in the, I need to figure this out pile, right? Mm-hmm. And there's usually, you know, five to 10, why do Chinese steel stocks look good while the rest of the world doesn't, right? And so, you know, and then we we then try to backtrack and figure out what's going on. So I think, you know, what, what we do that's different is we believe in fundamentals, um, but we start with the charts. And I think that's the, that's the difference. So that raises an interesting question. You're both a CFA, right. which stands for Chartered Financial Analyst, yes. essentially the key to looking at stocks on a fundamental basis. I'm officially a CFA charter holder. Char- which the, means you've gone per the, the distance, all right, three but, but, tests. And a CMT, yes. a chartered market technician. Right. So that's relatively unusual, having both fundamental abilities and technicals. Uh, what what motivated you to go for both uh, accreditations? Well, my, my, uh, my background is uh, formal education is in finance. So obviously that's more fundamental than technical. And, and like everybody who comes through any uh, business school, it was, uh, you know, relatively uh, poo-pooed, uh, the art of technical analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I bought into that as I, you know, was uh, searching for grades more than anything else. <laughs> and, um, you know, once I um, got into the business, uh, I just found um, that the technicians who I appreciated, Bob Farrell, who I grew sure. up under, Steve Shobin, who was my mentor at, at Lehman Brothers and just a fantastic individual and, and great technician. Um, I just, I found that there was something to what they were saying. In fact, it was usually uh, more prescient than what you're seeing out of the, out of the fundamental side. So I, I picked up the Edwards and McGee book. I read it. Um, it was interesting. I didn't, you know, I didn't buy into it wholeheartedly, but certainly there were, you know, parts of it that I appreciated and, and could see the, the light with. Um, I thought the, um, the, the, the books, the, the Schweizer books, um, or the, uh, I think it's Schweizer, Schweiger, um, the Jack Schweiger, Market yeah, Schweiger, Wizards. right. Market wizard books. Sure. I thought those were fantastic. Unbelievable. And, and, and what that did for me really solidified it was, um, and I've always been this type of person it was about probability, right? And the best way for me to manage risk and thinking about it, whether it's at the poker table, the blackjack table, or in the markets, was through technical analysis. And that just really hit me over the head as as to uh, the type of discipline, essentially car- counting cards in the market um, is the so way I viewed it. You start with the evidence and the data, you lay out what's most likely, least likely, and everything in between, and that colors how you see the markets. Yeah, look, I I, I, I describe it a little differently. Uh, the difference between the pot odds and the odds in my hand, right? There's a certain probability of pulling a card to complete an inside flush, or an inside straight, pardon me. Um, if the opportunity to stay in the pot is low enough and the uh, the reward is high enough, absolutely those, even though it might be a very slim chance of pulling that straight, 
the, the chance to stay in makes an awful lot of sense, and, and that's how we think about it. You things. know, I took the, the MTA course with Ralph Acampora, and one of the lines that have stayed with me all these years has been, fundamentals tell you what to buy, technicals tell you when to buy. Is that true? There, there's, there's some truth to that. I would, uh, I would add to that, though, too. Um, in fact, you know, I was just talking to somebody about this with gold. Um, oftentimes, the technicals will tell you um, what to buy, and maybe you don't know the fundamental story yet, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you think about when Apple first broke out of this huge base formation, nobody had a clue about the iPhone, and I mean, it just was unbelievable, you know, sort of the 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 uh, uh, the ramp into product uh-huh. and changing the world. Same thing with gold today. You know, the gold trends have changed, um, and they changed in the, the first quarter for us, but. You know, somebody asked me, well, is it uh, currencies? Is it, uh, you know, negative interest rates? I I don't know officially what the answer is, but the charts are telling you that something Mm -hmm. is out there that uh, has a high probability of continuing. Let me ask you a simple question. What do most people misunderstand about technical analysis? I think, and and this will, you know, this will uh, send shivers down some people's spines, I think people believe that technical analysis can predict the future, and I really don't see it as that. I see technical analysis as identifying trends, uh, identifying opportunities within those trends, and taking advantage of them. So to say it's predicting the future, I think, is is a little uh, a little misguided. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Jeff DeGraff. He is the chairman and head technical analyst. Is that your your proper t- title? CEO and chairman and yeah, head, fill in the uh, blank yeah, at you, Renaissance Macro, a uh, a pretty much a global research shop that supports institutions, hedge funds, correct. mutual funds, etc. Let, let's jump right in. Let's jump right in. Why technicals work? And I think it's it's pretty interesting for the layperson, for the average investor who might be listening to this or some student in an MBA course where they tell you this stuff doesn't work. Explain, what is technical analysis and why does it work? Well, there are definitely elements within technical analysis that I would even say probably don't work. And I want to be careful with some of those. And, and, and Elliott uh, Wave, Fibonacci, I, well, some uh, of the more fringe stuff, or just generally the patterns that some people well, there, there are oscillations that people sort of believe must mean revert and that's really you know we've done a lot of work on that and that and doesn't, doesn't prove to be true there, there are certain uh conditions that you can overlay to help uh, create better uh, probabilities or opportunities but really what it comes down to for us is is technical analysis works because it's about trend analysis and if you think about just the the world in which we live um you know, there are trends in place everywhere, right? I mean, earnings are generally mm-hmm. trending. Um, uh, and so, you know, to expect that there's sort of this randomness in earnings, uh, there, there isn't, right? There generally is a trend. Now, there might be missed opportunities in those earnings trends here and there. But for the most part, uh, you know, a company's fundamental trajectory will be a trend. And, and we're capturing that through price. And the idea is that the markets are efficient. And so what you know, what I know from a fundamental sense is probably already embedded in that price. And mm-hmm. what we're doing is we're just simply measuring that price, taking that temperature and understanding or trying to understand whether or not the probabilities are for a continuation in that price or for a reversal in that price. So so the baseline assumption is that a trend in place, that momentum is going to continue 
until such time as something acts to stop it. The probabilities overwhelmingly, whether it's academic research, our own research, are that there's a persistence in trends in the market. It's called momentum in mm-hmm. a lot of uh, in, a, in a lot of academic studies, um, and it, it it drives people nuts because it quote unquote <laughs> shouldn't work, right? But the reality is is that it does, and um, and that's what we exploit. Well, why shouldn't it work? Let Let's step back because you're a big macro guy, and you look at things from both a fundamental, a technical, a quant an economic perspective, hey, every day people are earning money. That money gets shoveled into their 401ks and elsewhere. Ultimately, there's only so many stocks in the universe that a fund manager with a given uh, sector or topic or charge is going to buy, and so he's going to go back and keep buying his favorite names over and over again. I mean, it's, it's a great point. The, the academics would say um, there's the efficient market hypothesis, which says that the, um, you know, the, the weak form, the strong form, mm-hmm. that that information should already be discounted in the market price. And the reality is, is it, just, it just isn't. Uh, right. It's sort of, kind of, eventually more or less efficient, but it's not instantly efficient. You have there are too many people who have been consistently beating the markets. I know the academics like to just shrug it off and say right. outliers, right. one-offs, but there are just too many Howard Marks and too many Warren Buffetts, even though we're talking you know, a few dozen, but they shouldn't exist, and they do. Right. And, and that, that sort of begets that perfectly efficient thing. So what do you think is more important, trend or mean reversion? Without question, trend. Um, if you look at mean reversion without the presence of trend, uh, in other words, try to identify mean reversion without looking at first what the underlying trend is, um, it is quickly a, uh, a recipe and a system for losses. Um, the trends are historically, um, and this is across assets, uh, it's not just equities, but the trends are historically uh, prescient in giving you some foresight into the the, the, the next move higher, and what? that's that can be everything from intraday to to you know long term multi multi year. You know what we find the sweet spot, um, and this isn't you know I'm not uh, I'm not breaking any rules here or, or breaking any new ground, but we find that from three months uh, three months in, in other words, one month, two months, three months, uh, the returns of of equities over that period. Um, tend to be mean reverting. In other words, if I have mm-hmm. strong one month performance, the probability of me having another outperformance the next month is actually pretty low. Right. Um, if I start getting into six month, 12 month timeframes and look out for the next six to 12 months, that probability actually shifts to being more momentum oriented, right? So I, you want to be careful when people talk about, well, I'm not a trend follower, I'm not a momentum player. You know, you really have to define what your time frame is. Because if you're a swing trader, if you're a short-term player, then you can be anti-momentum. But mm-hmm. I wouldn't suggest that you know you use 12-month or 9-month momentum uh, and try to fade that. Historically, that doesn't work out so well. How does valuation fit into into your analysis? Well, let's let's take valuation and, and lump it with uh, fundamental analysis. Okay. Right? And, and we would look at um, fundamental analysis as um, one silo in what we call conditional factors. These are things that tend to support a bull phase or tend to support a bear phase. So you have these conditions, valuation being one um, that certainly would be more supportive of a bull phase, presuming there's uh, there's good valuation. I would put things like credit, uh, sentiment, seasonality, all these would be conditions that, that support a bull or bear phase. Um, think about it, if you will, like the amount of gas in, in the tank. Mm-hmm. It, it, it sort of tells you how far you can go. Um, 
the other side of that is momentum and trend. And we think about that as how hot the spark is in the engine. Each one of these independently is, is useless, right? But it's the combination of both that's important. So if I've got strong conditions, if I've got a lot of bearishness, I've got good valuation, I've got st- seasonality, credit conditions are good, and I've got that hot spark, I've got momentum, I've got trend, that's a great combination. So for us, that's about position sizing, right? That's a bigger call. That's something that we're more mm. comfortable in. We'll make a bigger bet with. If I've got uh, the, the market today, if I've got a hot spark, in other words, we've got good trend, we've got good momentum, but the the way that we see the fuel in the tank is being maybe a quarter full, mm-hmm. I'll still play, but I have to understand that the, the probabilities of this being an 09 type of trend change or an 03 type of trend change really are, are, are low. How does sector work figure into your macro approach? Do you look at specific market sectors, technology, healthcare, energy? Yeah, absolutely. We think, you know, we're known for market calls. I mean, that's sort of what people want to hear. But the reality is, is the way that we really make money are through sectors. And uh, we we look at sector relative performance. We look at global relative performance. So we bring it all together and find that there's a, a, a huge uh, correlation between uh, between regional markets and the sectors. Um, and so we'll, we'll use all that to identify where the best and where the worst sectors are. And we quantify the process. We have ways in which we've quantified. So it's not Jeff DeGraff waking up, you know, in a bad mood someday and saying everything <laughs> looks terrible. Um, we have it quantified so we can back test it and we can give people the, the confidence and assuredness that, hey, if you follow the system, here's what you're looking at in terms of uh, probabilities. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Jeff DeGraff. He is a technician extraordinaire, and and I jokingly started the show by saying he resigned Lehman Brothers pretty much to the day of its all-time high. That's how we know he's a really good technician. But that actually is a true anecdote. You did move to ISI pretty much early 2007, yeah. 2007 when late February 07 was uh, my resignation. And, and that's pretty much the top tick in Lehman. It was the it was the my resignation letter was the day after the high in the stock price. So that's lucky not good, but uh that is a true story. I, I love that story. That, that I I've said that to people and they're like, "No, that can't be." I'm like, "No, no, he's a really good technician." <laughs> he saw that that trend break and he said, "That's it, I'm out of here." Um but it's kind of interesting because you left for ISI. You were there for a couple of years. Ed Hyman, another guy who 30-plus yeah, years, number guy. one ranked. Uh, we found him on the show. He's great. But at a time when when commission dollars are, are plummeting, when research budgets are really being constrained, you decide to launch a new research firm. Right. What was the thinking like making that leap? Well, you know, look the the research budgets are contracting, but when you're when you're bloated and have you know too much capacity, that's a bigger problem. When mm-hmm. you're starting with eight people, which we did, uh, and are now up to twenty seven, um, you know that's a that's a different uh, that's a different game. And so, you know, focusing on one of the the keys to starting uh, Renmac was. Uh, we wanted to build a world-class database, and you know you just have to do that yourself. You can't mm-hmm. do it under a, another another entity, or you're basically building it for somebody else. And so the idea was build a world-class database, quantify, approach this in a much different way to, uh, to work into people's process, so that they have another overlay. Look, 99% of the street uh, spends its time, and I, I I don't fault them for this, uh, on fundamental research and the nitty-gritty, the quote-unquote knowing the companies better than anybody else. Uh, 
Um, but the reality is, is not enough time is spent uh, in the process of just understanding what the macro environment is, what the trends are. And so from our standpoint, we wanted to be able to quantify that for people so that they didn't have to become technicians, but they could look at it and say, okay, I understand that the risks are high in technology, that the opportunity set is actually high in industrials and have some quantification around that. And that's really what we provide. So RenMac is creating a, a dimensional analysis that simply isn't available to from other researchers. Is that what sets you guys apart from everyone else? Absolutely. I think that's that's uh, that's a huge part of it. And and how does one combine economics, quant, fundamentals, and technicals in in one package? Well, we, we don't do the fundamental side per se. Um, we have Neil Dutta who does our, our mm -hmm. economic side. And that's, look, there's a lot of high-frequency data in economics and, and even more so when you think about the globe. Uh, and those are important data points. Uh, so what we do is we use those data points, um, we test those data points, we look at them uh, within the context of what's happening to trends to see if they're useful. Uh, again, some of those conditional factors that I spoke about in the earlier segment. Um, and that's how we, we, we marry it together. In terms of this um, conditional elements, one of the things that you're known for is changing the weight of certain indicators depending on whether or not we're in a bullish or bearish market. Few people manage to do this well. How do you go about approaching that? You have to quantify it. You can't do it by the seat of your pants. You have to have... Um, a quantification of the discipline, and you have to test that over time, and we've done that. And so uh, a big one for us is our trend model, um, where we have uh, basically a bullish, bearish trend. Um, it, it can go neutral, but we don't really have a neutral state. We like to have it either black right. or white. And what we find is that other indicators that if you looked at over the entire spectrum of bullish and bearish might not be worth a damn. But when you break it down between bearish and bullish, um, some indicators work very, very well in a bear state. Mm -hmm. Other indicators work very, very well in a bull state, but they don't work well uh, across those different states. So for us, the quantification trend is a big one. The quantification of trend and then understanding what conditions work within that trend are a, a huge part of what we do. So what do you do in a crisis when we saw the 0809 crisis ramping up? Essentially, all the correlations went to one, and right. it seemed like... You were either in bonds or equity-like products, and there was nothing in between. How do you analyze us, those sort of circumstances? Well, we, we have ways to to measure sentiment, which obviously was uh, a disaster. I mean, people were apocalyptic, as we like to call it at the time. Um, we have ways to measure the um, the severity of the downtrend, the risk-adjusted returns, mm -hmm. um, and we look at those. And when they're they're so bad... Um, believe it or not, our system flags it. So we have an understanding that there's probably some capitulation taking place. Uh, and then we look at the credit markets. Credit markets are a huge part of our input that I don't think a lot of people pay as much mm -hmm. attention to as they should. And look, the credit markets uh, made their low uh, in November of 2008 and were healing for a good three months prior to the equity low, right? So when we looked at that, that combination of things going on saying, boy, credit's getting better, but the equity markets are trading at a new low, there's some opportunity here. And while we were warming up to equities, again, we needed that spark. We needed mm -hmm. to see that that engine spark. And that's what we saw in the early part of, of March of that year with these big breath days and this thrust. That's the, that's the spark that we needed to say, hey, these conditions are in place for what should be um, a pretty impressive rally. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Jeff DeGraff. He is the founder and CEO 
of and head te- technician at Renaissance Macro uh, Analysis. Am I pronouncing that right? Renaissance? Just call it RenMac. Just make Ren-Mac. it easy. Call it RenMac. We'll make it easy. RenMac. <laughs> uh, Jeff has been number one ranked by Institutional Investor Magazine for the past 12 years uh, as both a technical and macro analyst, uh, probably best known for his years as the chief technician at Lehman Brothers. Let's talk a little bit about the macro, which is something that has been fascinating. It drives a lot of news stories. It makes a great narrative. You know, in my office, we call certain people macro tourists, the folks who dabble in macro. They have gotten killed over the past few years. What What is that about? Well, it's about opportunity and thinking that you know you can you can use the 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 news environment to make money, which is usually pretty difficult. Uh, again, Late to the back party, to, yeah. Get, getting back to the discounting mechanism, right? So, um, you know, I think that's one uh, that's one area of uh, uh, of of trouble or or this problematic. Uh, you know, look the the macro. The reason that we specialize in macro is because. 95% of the street pays attention to their industry, they pay attention to their individual stocks, and they pay attention to their models. They don't really incorporate what's going on in the globe and whether or not the central bank uh, assets are expanding or contracting or you know negative rates and the potential impact of that. So what we're trying to do is, is really cut out that niche and give them the opportunity to look for somebody who's got expertise in that, who does this on a daily basis so that they can incorporate that into their small little world, which is uh, really industry focused. So we've seen a number of hedge fund players the past few years really struggle. Warren Buffett just came out at the annual 2016 Berkshire uh, shareholder meeting uh, in response to a question said to people, hey, it's a lot of underperformance and it's a lot of excess fees. Uh, uh, He's not a fan. Why have hedge funds been having so much difficulty in the present environment? Well, I think it's been policy related. And if you look at uh, the excess returns on a volatility adjusted basis for uh, for the S&P, right? mm-hmm. the, the pure index, um, they've been one of the five best periods that we've had since the 1920s. It's a generational rally. People have fought it the whole way up. 200 plus percent over six years, that, that's a monster move. You're also putting people into these index products where they're looking at these returns, right? And they're saying, again, why should I pay active management? Forget hedge funds, but just active management mm-hmm. when I can buy an index product for 15 basis points and call it a day, and I'm actually outperforming most people. And that's fine. That happens, but that also happened at the end of 1999, right? That also happened <laughs> at the end of 2007. And so when we look at our metrics of how much fuel's in the tank, this actually isn't the point where you want to start endorsing indexes. This Mm -hmm. is the point where you want to start endorsing active management, hedge funds, to look for an opportunity set um, that will produce something that's better than what we think is is the the excess returns on a volatility-adjusted basis going forward. So so you mentioned some of the signals that were coming from the credit market and elsewhere in 08-09. You know, what did, how did you analyze the financial crisis? What really stood out from that period that your unique way of looking at markets uh, was insightful? Well, I think there are two things. The first was, if you remember, the, um, uh, the internal hedge fund at Bear Stearns blew up. And right. we were seeing that- Summer of 07, yeah, something exactly. like that? We were seeing that stress in the credit markets, in the swap markets particularly, ahead of time. And, um, you know, it just worked its way down from 10s to 5s to 2s and, and then sort of went away. 
and said, well, what? That's weird. Like, there's, there's always huh. some, you know, something goes kaboom here, and then two weeks later, we, you know, we yeah, got that. It's all that. fine. Yeah, nothing and, to see here. Move along. Right, right. And then boom, you know, it happens. Um, and then you had the continued deterioration um, in these in these financials uh, on the way down. So, you know, talking about big top formations and the things that um, you know, sort of traditional technical analysis looks at, those were in place uh, in a lot of these uh, financials uh, in the uh, in the mid part of 2007, and obviously extending into 2000. And eight, um, you had what was considered at the time the whale of uh, uh, of Bear Stearns. Mm-hmm. We rallied off of that into the summer of 08. and then just you know with this lethargy started to roll over again, which was the uh oh moment that you know not all is well, and then there may be some other fish to come up uh, to the surface here you, as well. I, I recall August 08, and you could just smell something was coming. It was it was yeah. one of those things where, gee, this just feel. I know that. You're an evidence-based guy. I like to think I'm an evidence-based guy. But it was one of those moments over the past 20 years where you could say, gee, something wicked this way comes. You couldn't put a finger on it, right. but you knew it was coming. And remember, intrabank lending rates were, were spiking. The mm-hmm. LIBOR OIS spread was spiking. The euro basis swaps. Were, so there were a lot of things that just said the mechanism uh, was having trouble. That there was there was distrust amongst counterparties, uh, and that's actually a, a much different scenario than we have today. While the European banks don't look good to us, mm-hmm. the internal mechanism of that that counterparty risk is is actually in pretty good shape. You don't have the same sand in the gears that you had in 0809. No, this just seems to be almost more. I don't want to use the word systemic, but m- more uh, sort of generational in terms of what's happening to banks. That the you know the, the banking business has just become a bad business. It's a secular change that some of it's technology, some of it's the new generation coming up that is distrustful, but it doesn't seem to be the same sector that it was 10 years ago. Right, right. And we actually think that that's one of the reasons why we we looked at uh, starting RENMAC. We think that there's still opportunity for good research. Um, you know, particularly if you're willing to invest in it, and the big banks just don't have that much interest in doing that here. Not willing to put money and effort into into the research. You would think that that's a, a potential cash cow for them, or has the industry changed so much that it no longer is? Well, you know, look, research was forever a byproduct of banking, right? Mm-hmm. And the settlement in early 2000s sort of drove a wedge between the official link between those two. So ever since then, research has always been considered a cost center, right? Mm-hmm. So there's been this juniorization of research taking place where people are swapping out senior analysts for junior analysts just to have the coverage, helps the bank, but they don't have to pay for it. Uh, you know, look, we, we, we still believe in good old-fashioned research and think that there's a, a premium to be had for that. And, you know, our business is proving that that's true. I had a conversation with someone who talked about how middle market and merchant banking has been abandoned by the large banks if they've moved upstream. And these guys are screaming for any sort of coverage, uh, uh, transactional bankers, and, and there's a dearth there. I wonder how much of an opportunity exists for either boutique or sp- purpose-specific research shops like your own that can help fill in the void. Well, we certainly hope so. So let's talk a little bit about II, where you've been ranked 12 years running. Is that right? I think that's right. It's been a um, That That's an incredible track record to amass. To what do you uh, – and for people who may not be familiar with institutional investor, people uh, vote, and they actually vote based to some degree on their – uh, assets under management and the commissions they spend, and they specifically say, this is our favorite economist. That's been Ed Hyman for 35 years running. 
the joke being he's actually not an economist, um, just plays one on TV. And you've been number one for 12 years running as a macro analyst and 11 years as a technical yeah, analyst. Yeah, Is that right? I think that's right. That That's quite a track record. To what do Thank you, you. Uh, to blame or credit that? <clears throat> yeah, I, uh, I, I guess what we try to do is we try to be as intellectually honest as we possibly can. Um, we are very, very committed to making people money. Um, that is, I mean, that is job one as we see it. Um, and, uh, I think, you know, the other important part of it is we, we try to quantify the process. We try to demystify the technical process. And so, you know, if you don't have a lot of technical experience, um, we don't try to use the jargony words. We try to say, Hey, here's, you know, here are the probabilities of this taking place based on these these certain factors of which they are technical. And so I think a lot of that has to do with the, the quantification, uh, the demystification of the of the process. So I went out on Twitter over the weekend and said, hey, I'm interviewing Jeff DeGraff. Any questions? And a few interesting things popped up from, from some technicians on Twitter. Uh, one of the ones I liked was, how do you as an analyst put a new and intriguing lens on the macro view when so much of it is is well-trod uh, land. So many people have, have are covering macro. How do you keep it fresh and interesting and valuable? Yeah, well, we, we rely on our database and we rely on our computer programmers and um, we rely on the uh, quantification of the data. Um, I mean, I'll give you a great example. We, you know, our single stock database goes back to the existence of the S&P back to the early 1960s. So mm -hmm. when we go through and look at, hey, do, do breakouts work? Do breakdowns work? How does this, you know, play itself out? We're not talking about the next or the last 10 years or 15 years. We're really talking about, you know, over longer than my lifespan mm -hmm. so far. Um, you know, the, the beginning of the S&P, some 55 plus years. And so, um, you know, I think that's one of the things that, that differentiates us and puts a different spin on things is that when you get the work from us, you've got the totality of work and, you know, we'll lay it out and say, hey, this works or this doesn't work or this works, but only in these conditions. And, um, you know, not many people are doing that. We've been speaking with Jeff DeGraff of RenMac. Uh, Jeff, where can people find your work if they want to read more about what you guys do? Our website, www.renmac.com. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all things market-related. Uh, be sure and check out all of our previous conversations. You can find them on Apple iTunes, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Are you looking to take your business to the next level? The accounting, tax, and advisory professionals from Cone Resnick can guide you. Cone Resnick delivers industry expertise and forward-thinking perspective that can help turn business possibilities into business opportunities. Look ahead, gain insight, imagine more. Is your business ready to break through? Learn more at coneresnick.com slash breakthrough. Cone Resnick, accounting, tax, advisory. Welcome to the podcast portion of our conversation. Jeff, thank you so much for doing this. Now I get to take off my headphones. I normally have these little headphones that are very unobtrusive, but um, I wasn't in the office Friday. I forgot to bring them, and so I'm, I'm a little bit of a mess today. Um, right. Really, thank you so much for doing this. I, do it. I have a few people who are serious uh, technicians. I think 
J.C. Peretz had you speak at uh, an MTA event. Might yeah. have been, been yeah. here. Yeah. He was like, dude, so exciting to listen to Jeff. I'm like, all right, give me a couple of questions. Cool. So some of those questions were his. Nice. Um, you studied finance in college. Did right. you know from day one you wanted to go right into uh, right onto Wall Street? Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was pretty easy. I like the. Um, I mean, look, I was trying to get out of Michigan, mm-hmm. <laughs> so out of Kalamazoo. Yeah, out of Kalamazoo. Um, but uh, you know, I liked the intellectual challenge. I liked the lifestyle. I remember the first interview. I was in Chicago looking at, at opportunities. And the first interview, um, the guy said, uh, you'll never meet an industry where there's the funniest and smartest people at the same time. That's and interesting. I, and I said, sign me up. Right. You're right. So I enjoyed that. That That's really interesting. There are a number of hilarious people in this industry. Yeah. Most people are not familiar with them, um, but they're out there and they definitely have yeah. a, uh, uh, there's some sense of humor. My, my partner, uh, Josh Brown, people don't realize this guy is hilarious, and people simply have no idea how funny he is. Although I think on Twitter, people have finally, uh, <laughs> finally figured that out. So you go straight to Wall Street. You were at Merrill Lynch in the early days, yeah. is that right? Yeah, early days, and then in 1998, uh, I moved over to Lehman Brothers uh, under Steve Shobin, who had been at Merrill, so I knew Steve from my Merrill days. Uh, started out doing international work. Uh, at Lehman Brothers, and then moved into the hot seat in uh, in 2000 there, as chief tech yep. chief technician at Lehman. So, what right. were the golden days of of Lehman Brothers like? Oh, it was you know I was too young to know better. Right. Um, you Ain't know, that always the way? It yeah, is? The, I mean the the 98 to 2000 was just unbelievable, insane. Uh, it was it was it was so much fun. It was so fun to come into the to the office. Lehman Brothers had a great culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was 160 you know, years old, something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was in, and, and it was the, the little train who thought they could. Right. And so just people were, you know, hungry and, uh, it was, it was just, it was fun. Uh, we were all climbing in the right direction. Um, little train, they were the fourth, fourth largest investment bank. They dominated mortgage underwriting. They were a substantial force for a long time. But remember that wasn't a big deal until right. sort of the mid aughts. Right. So well, nobody in, in realized until right. a little there exactly. were there were early signs that there were issues there. Oh two, oh three, things just got. Talk about looking at at data. One of my favorite charts has always been um, median income to median home price. And, right. And I was looking at this long before the collapse, and you could see you were three standard deviations away from the norm. So yep. either everybody's going to get a raise, or something bad is going to happen right. in housing. Right. It was pretty much one or the other. Yep. Um, uh, did you ever uh, spend much time under Dick Fold and and meet meet him, work with him, or was he off in the corner office? I mean, I met him a few times, but it wasn't uh, there. Big wasn't, place, there right? Wasn't, yeah, there wasn't daily interaction. Tell us about the research uh, process there. How how was that? Was pretty much traditional Wall Street research at at Lehman. It, yeah, it was, but it was you know there were good, hungry, uh, young analysts. Um, my president now, Steve Hash, uh, who's president of, of Renmac, um, actually ran the research department there. Um, we invested in up and comers. I mean, we just believed uh-huh. in you know good, smart, young thinkers. And uh, Dada a, is a, another one. Was uh, was that Merrill or Lee? Merrill. No, yep. at Merrill. So, and yep. you brought him along yep. as well. Absolutely. So that's you know that's how we think about the world. Where, where's the rest of your team from? 
Oh, it's all over the map. Mm-hmm. Uh, some ISI salespeople, a lot of people that have been just from different parts of the of the business. Um, yeah, all all different walks of life. So, what's the plan for a a, a relatively, you know, you're five years old, just about? Is yeah. that right? Yeah, a relatively young, uh, fast growing company. How do you see this playing out for someone who's not yet fifty? What do you want to do with this company? Uh, look, I'm I'm a big believer in the research process, and while others are sort of moving away from it, you know, call it straw hats in January. Mm-hmm. I think that there's opportunity there for the right people. It's not just plug and play, and you know, hope for the best. I think you have to get the right people in there. But there's still, I mean, we see it in the business. There's still a demand for good, um, thoughtful analysts, right? Not just people that do stock research, but people that think differently, do the hard work, roll up their sleeves, you know, understand the company. There's 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 interest there. Now, what we what we want to do and make sure that we do with this is that it ties into the macro play, right? So it's not just covering semiconductors, but the semiconductors from a broader standpoint and how and what that means for the the macro world. You know, there's there's a thesis kicking around that following the early 2000 analyst settlement with the New York State Attorney General, Part of the settlement was a mandate that large banks funds independent third-party research, and you and that that mandate has now ended. So you had this huge boom throughout the aughts of uh, independent research, some of which was pretty good, some of which was of dubious value. But hey, there was a mandate, and we had money to spend. Go spend it. That has run its course, and that seems to be at least in part behind some of the the shakeout that's happened in, in the research space. But what's left are the companies that people are sending research dollars to, whether they have to or not. They're the companies they find value at and want to buy, purchase their research. You, ISI, there's a run of them that have, have been around for a while and are likely to continue being around, which is a long-winded way to get to the question of, how do you see the rest of this shakeout in research playing out? I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I think you're going to end up with um, with the traditional banks uh, again uh, moving towards that juniorization, and um, meaning they'll they'll swap out a high paid senior analyst with a junior guy without a lot of experience, but doesn't demand a big check, right? And so they still have coverage, but you know, it's not. It's not. Uh, I'm trying to think of a, a, a classic example of an analyst who who was the axe on a particular stock or in a particular sector. But Rick Sherlands on on Microsoft or Charlie Wolf on Apple. There are a handful of guys who knew it better than anybody. That era seems to be coming to an end. Yeah, I, I think so for the big banks. But mm-hmm. there's still that opportunity set for the independents, right? And a, a number of firms. Forget the macro space that 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 we focus on, but um, you've got it for media, you've got it for industrials, you you've had it for financials. So you know even these silos. Um, Dana Telsey came out of Bear Stearns. Yeah. She's co- yeah. tag Telsey Advisors. Ivy Zellman, right? Right yeah. uh, on housing. Dana yeah. is on retail. So right. people who have an expertise in the yeah. space that becomes their area. That's right. That's right. Huh. That that's kind of uh, that's kind of fascinating. That that's. We didn't really see that 20 or so years ago, or did we? Um, now, you'd have newsletter like? writers and things, right. but I think there's, there's a few things there. One, 
is that the the execution business, right? Having a broker dealer, the execution business through technology has gotten much simpler, right? Mm-hmm. So this whole best execution, I mean, RenMac, little old RenMac can provide um, the best execution because we we basically use um, the other big banks' algos, right? So right. we we come in and 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 uh, sort of you know from a uh, from a from a darker perspective from the outside, people don't know exactly who's trading what, but you know we know uh, from mm-hmm. our desk. The um, you know the uh, the other part of that is the the technology has allowed distribution um, to be a lot cheaper than it was. Um, I mean, I remember when I started, um, we would send faxes, huh. you know, and it was priced per sheet per per uh, recipient, right? Every, so every page I mean, there was a out. there was a half a million dollar. I'm serious. There was a half a million dollar cost in distributing our research because we had to pay the long distance fee and the fax fees. And you know, once uh, the the proliferation of email came about, writing a program to just convert that to a PDF and sending it out was was simple. So and, faxes, you're really talking late 80s, early 90s. By the mid 90s, email was starting to pick up a bit. It was, but to have research done, you know, in a way that um, you, you know, weren't sending was, big PDFs over. No, over email that's exactly in the 90s. right. That's exactly that, right. That was a bandwidth issue which wasn't solved the, till after Global Crossing and uh, Metro Media <laughs> Fiber collapsed and left all this dark fiber exactly. that was so expensive to build. Free and or at least cheap for everybody else to pick up that's on their right. uh, on their bones. Excess so, supply will create demand, and it uh, did. It, it, well, that's the story of every major technology boom: is after the bust, you have all this inexpensive infrastructure. Right. So that leads to the obvious question, which you alluded to previously: How has technology changed the way you do business? Well, uh, doing business or doing uh, Both. analysis, I Both. think, are two different things, right? Um, you know, look, business is done, you know, in the same, in the same way. I mean, obviously it's relationships and you're, you know, you understand what the clients are looking for. And, um, I mean, I don't think that that'll ever go away or certainly shouldn't. Um, in terms of the analysis, um, you know, I think one of the problems that you end up with is, um, you know, you, you give people the opportunity to sort of do things and they think they can do it. Right. And they don't have the background or the understanding um, to fully take advantage of what some of the technology can do. Um, and so, you for know, instance, let me interrupt you there. So, in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s, you could get all manner of charts for free everywhere online. Right. And, and everyone fancied themselves a technician. Right. Most were not. Right. So, is that democratization by technology? Um, is that a problem that people actually think they could do things when there's a handful of technicians who came out of that era who were really good and a number of people who, you know, they're, they think they're technicians, but they're just, you know, uh, exhibiting confirmation bias. I have this, let me go find a chart that I I own this. Let me find something that, that confirms my prior position. Yeah, I think, I think, but I think that happens with almost anything that's out there, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I can retile my bathroom. I can't retile my bathroom. (laughs) Right, I mean, that's but there the are YouTube videos that'll show you how to I do know, it. But it's still not going to look as good as if I pay the guy to do it, right? That's, and, and that's so, why you hire a pro, right? Exactly. So it's the you know it's really the same thing in any in any business, and uh, um, you know we we find uh, we find similar you know similar situations. But you know what we're doing, uh, which is so unique, is again we're quantifying that process. So mm-hmm. instead of drawing a trend line or um, you know saying it's overbought or oversold, we contextualize that and we show. 
you know, what that really means in terms of the, the history and whether or not it's valuable. And that's what, you know, that's what the amateurs and frankly, a lot of the pros don't even do. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's one thing that you know, really sets us apart. So you're using technology um, in a very significant way. You've built this database. What did you use for sources to put that together? How long did it take to clean up that database to get it to do what you want? How many different components are you tracking in that? Tell us a little bit about the secret sauce, um, as much as you're willing to reveal. Right, while well, keeping uh, it secret. Yeah. Um, look, it's you know we Just use we use great. We use we use crisp data, crisp mm-hmm. price data, um, and we've got that uh, again going back. Uh, you know S and P ninety going back to the the mid uh, the mid nineteen twenties. And for people who don't understand, CRISP comes out of the University of Chicago, Correct. if uh, memory serves, yeah, right. and really a, a a deep and fairly clean database uh, of of market information. Yep, I, I think it goes all the way back to the twenties. Yeah, if memory serves yeah, something yeah. like so that. So you can get the S and P ninety back to the twenties, which mm-hmm. is you know, whenever you see the S and P five hundred quoted beyond. 1960 it's it's the predecessor yeah which was in the s&p 500 Correct. even even the s&p 500 was in the s&p 500 too sometime in the late i'm trying to remember when they changed the weighting it was a floating yeah, weighting was, by right, sector right and that's that right. all went away in the 80s sometime yep yep, yep. so it changes and and uh, so we certainly look at that and we look at the you know various weightings over time um we use option data um for a big part of our sentiment work um we incorporate fundamental data um, from various, various sources. Um, and then um, we also, which I think uniquely, we bring in uh, economic data so that we can see what that looks like in relation to these other things that we're looking at technically for stocks, right? So does huh. PMI work here? Mm-hmm. Does the, um, you know, d- do the, uh, uh, the, 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 the H4 data from the Fed, does that have any influence? And so um, always looking, always adding, always building, and uh, CFTC data, we use that as well. So so let's talk about economic data. Yep. Um, what is actually going on in terms of, I, I'm not looking for a forecast to the future, historically, what is the correlation between changes in the overall economy, either for the better or worse, and markets? I, I've always looked at markets leading economic data, although not by as much as some people imagine. Well, that's true. I mean, look, economic data is certainly um, less noisy, believe it or not, um, but it also lags. I mean, there's a reason there are leading indicators, coincidental indicators, and lagging indicators, mm-hmm. right? And Meaning the, leading the cycle or lagging the cycle. Correct. And look, the reason that business is so hard, if you could just look at economic data and forecast the S&P correctly, it'd be easy, right? It just, it doesn't happen. Hey, everybody's going to be rich. Right, exactly. So, uh, you know, what we look at is historically the market has sniffed things out. Now it's gotten it wrong before, Mm -hmm. but as I like to say that, you know, the market will fib, but it won't be a a chronic liar, Mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, that's a great line. You have to be careful of that. But the reality is, is that the market gets it right and the market gets it right better than the PMI gets it right. Mm -hmm. It gets it right better than the employment data gets it right, et cetera. So that's why it's really important from our standpoint to, you know, put your ear on the track, understand or try to understand, you know, what's coming down the, down the pipe. Um, But, uh, you know, from our vantage point, it's a very difficult and challenging environment trying to do that with just economic data. And that's probably why so many people uh, uh, always go to the quote by Samuelson, which is market indices have forecast uh, nine of the past four recessions. Markets will swing wildly. They're noisy, but they're going to do a better job than 
the average person scratching their chin and saying, hmm, here's here's what this this month's non-farm payroll means. Yeah, but, and let's you know let's take it to the next step too. What do I really care about the GDP number if I'm invested in the S and P 500? I'm not which invest- is global, right? I'm not I'm not invested in. I don't have a GDP swap, right? In other words, <laughs> GDP up over 3% and I make money. That, does, that has nothing to do with that. I want to know what's going to happen to the S&P, right? right? And so, you know, maybe we're not in recession, but you still have a 20% correction or bear market in the S&P. Right. That's important, right? Mm-hmm. And so from our standpoint, you know, the, the, the work on uh, getting the economy right, I get it from the perspective of the nation, and certainly I appreciate that, but from the perspective of the investor, what I'm really trying to do is get the S&P right, you know, and the, what I can tell you is getting the economy right has very little to do with getting the S&P right historically. That, that is a theme that I've heard from guests on the show for the past couple of years is, well, the economy is interesting and the market is interesting. And on occasion, they seem to be in sync, but most of the time, one goes one way and the other is just off uh, in its own path, and and trying to use the economy to forecast the market is just a fool's errand. Certainly yeah. seems that way. We we want to know what's going on. There's no doubt about it. But to to draw the link between the economy and saying that that that's going to mandate the S and P does X. Good luck. <laughs> so before I go to my favorite questions, I ask all my guests one last Twitter question. Someone had asked. So. Why not manage a fund? Why not run money or put together ETFs? Yeah. Why be an analyst? Well, so that's you hear of, this question all the time. That's one of the reasons why we started Redmac. To be honest with you, so mm-hmm. we we have a small, albeit small, um, we have a Redmac Capital mm-hmm. um, where we haven't actively raised money. We have a ongoing strategy that's in that, mostly partner money right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's definitely uh, you know stage Redmac 2.0 uh, uh-huh. that's in that uh, in that zone. There are people who left big firms to launch their own research shop. Rich Bernstein, probably most notable, who's sure. now running, you know, three or four billion dollars. Right. There's there's definitely a a path to that. And I love the idea of having that pile of money which generates revenue, which then can be plowed right back into making the research faster, sexier, more interesting. There's a lot of stuff you can do when you have that much uh, AUM with a fee on it, it just lets you plow it right back into the business. And we want to be careful. I mean, obviously, we don't want to have conflicts there. But what we do is, you know, we eat our own cooking. And Mm -hmm. um, it's a quantitative process. We think about it very quantitatively. It's not, you know, hey, I like that idea or that. It's it's, what does the system spit out? How does that overlay with these things? And then here's how we're managing that uh, portfolio. So the question that always used to come up on the old um, research desks was idea generation. Hey, what's what's the idea generation machine look like? You guys don't really do that. It's it's pretty much spitting out from that database. Well, it's idea generation. It's just not you know it's just not us noodling over it every single day and saying mm-hmm. hey you know what are the what are this what's this and that. Um, it's uh, looking at it now. It's important though is that you know we we understand through our research that there are points where um, certain things will perform better um, in certain environments. Right. So a great example. Um, you know, shorts right here in this environment are not performing well. And mm-hmm. we actually track that on a daily basis to see, hey, if you were to to be a seller of a breakdown, what's the performance? I mean, they're just they're just getting steamrolled. Mm-hmm. And that's actually an important becomes an important market indicator, but it also gives us some idea that the breakdowns in this environment have actually been a source of alpha. 
um, that breakouts are working, that overbought conditions aren't a place to be selling. Mm-hmm. Um, they're actually a reflection of the momentum. So our idea generation is a combination of using some traditional and non-traditional techniques, frankly, but then overlaying those and understanding how those work throughout history and where we should be at any given point in time. So I know I say the show's uh, tagline is no forecast, no stock picks. So I'm going to ask this question slightly differently. I've been hearing for, I don't know, five, six years, this rally is overboard. It's artificial. It's Fed-induced. It's going to end any day now, or so I've heard every day for the past five years. So where do you see us within the overall market cycle, and where does this end? Or, Or can this just continue into such point as something comes along to stop it? Well, look, I, I view the world as this ever-expanding uh, sample of the population, right? So, you know, the reality is, is while we have really good data, as good, our data is as good as anyone else's, you know, the markets in rough rice back in the, you know, the, the, the Chinese in the 15th century, I don't have that data. So maybe something <laughs> happened that was completely different that, you know, would skew other things. But what I can tell you is if you look over the last 80, 90 years uh, and you look at risk-adjusted returns for the S&P versus the risk-free rate and you measure those, we are in, um, you know, the 90th percentile of what you'd expect for excess returns. Mm-hmm. If you look at those other periods of time, the forward returns are not something that you'd want to write home about. In fact, you'd want to steer yourself towards that that active management, not uh, towards passive management. So I you know I I view this as the fuel in the tank mm-hmm. is relatively slight. Um, but within that context, it's important to recognize that momentum has been good. Mm-hmm. The trends for equities are positive. Um, and so while I think the path of least resistance in the near term is higher, and by near term, I mean three to six, maybe 12 months, mm-hmm. um, the, the amount of fuel we have to really propel it at this stage still seems to be uh, relatively lacking. So this is not, in our view, this turn was not some historic low that's going to provide right. um, you know, very good uh, uh, risk-adjusted returns going forward. I think it's enough to probably catch people off sides, get people to reposition, and then you know, come back and, uh, and give us a tougher environment in 2017. What is additional fuel that could keep the momentum going? Because we've seen profits sort of top out and start yeah. to roll over a bit. Um, energy prices never, low energy prices never really provided the oomph right. to consumers that they normally do. In theory, it helped them pay down some debt, yep. put a little cash in their pocket, yep. but we didn't see a surge in retail spending. Um, and we have an election coming up in November. What could change the dynamic that says, hey, this could go on for years, not quarters? Yeah, no, great question. It's usually something in the credit cycle, right? So credit cycle. it could be QE4. I don't mm. think that's likely, but that's, you know, let's let's keep our, our minds open. It could be fiscal stimulus. Um, it could, Which both sides have been talking about fairly yeah. uh, consistently. Right now, we have the credit cycle is flat. Mm-hmm. That, you know, if you look at global central bank balance sheets, um, so we don't concern ourselves as much with the rates as we do what's happening to the composition of the balance sheet, right? So mm-hmm. an expanding balance sheet 
is obviously credit creation. A contracting right. balance sheet is is credit deterioration or destruction. Um, global balance sheets, as we measure them, are about flat year over year, and uh-huh. that's actually one of the lowest levels that we've seen in the last fifteen years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, changing that dynamic would be important. The uh, the Chinese with the FX reserves stabilizing would be one part. Um, sovereign wealth funds not pulling uh, their uh, their wealth out of uh, of the U.S. asset markets. Um, that would be another point. Um, so you know, there's a lot of different dynamics that take place with this, but credit is usually at the forefront of it. And I'd say non-financial leverage, that we as we look at it, which is flattened here, if we can start to see that uptick, would be would be helpful as well. Last politically related question. Um... We keep hearing, and again, both sides talking about a tax holiday to repatriate some of the tens of trillions of corporate dollars that are overseas. Um, there's at least two trillion just out of the S and P 500, and I've seen estimates as high as 10 trillion. If whoever gets elected in November passes something like that, is that a temporary blip? Does that have the potential to? stimulate the economy here? Does that hurt Europe and Asia where the money might be sitting? What's the impact of that big repatriation, assuming it actually happens? Yeah. I mean, look, when you when you withdraw um, money from one system to another, there usually is a transfer there, mm-hmm. right? And so you, you're talking about tighter credit conditions and looser credit conditions. And, what, and by the way, the, the thinking behind this, just to, to you mentioned infrastructure before, the deal is the Democrats want a big infrastructure bill Bridges, roads, electrical grid, et cetera. The Republicans want to change the corporate tax rate or, and or repatriate the overseas dollar, but a temporary tax holiday, maybe you take, tax it at 6%, 5%, something like yeah. that. So if there's a deal struck, that that's where I was uh, yeah. leading from with yeah. that. I mean, that's, you know. Is that a positive? Is that a negative? Is it globally neutral? I'd view it as a positive for the U.S. Uh, I mean, this is not my area of expertise by any means, but I would, I would view it as a positive for the U.S., um, and then the question is: Is what? How is that capital utilized? Right? Is it, you know, is it really going into uh, property, plant, and equipment, R and D spending? Look, I think the reality is, is the trajectory is the trajectory. I don't think a, a boon. Uh, if if companies thought that they could earn positive returns on projects, they do it. I mean, for God's sakes, interest rates are you know next to nothing, right. so it's not it, it's not a huge hurdle here. We don't see a lot of CapEx spending, although right. some people have, have said that's misleading. When you look at it as a percentage of GDP or as a percentage of uh, other activity, it's actually at a fairly high rate. I think you'd probably go to corporate buybacks. Really? More so than, than CapEx That's investment. my guess. Yeah. Really, that, that would be interesting. Let's, in the last 15 minutes or so we have, get to... Our standard questions. We we talked about what you did before uh, Wall Street, which was college. Uh, who are your early mentors? Uh, Bob Farrell, uh, Steve Shobin. Let talk about Bob Farrell a little bit because Dave Rosenberg is a friend, another yeah. guy who has him yeah. as a mentor. I've had his, heard his name come up from. Ralph Acampora has mentioned him. A number of people have mentioned Farrell. Well, as, he was the first. Remember, he was the first one to actually. Um, head a technical analysis department at Merrill, right? Lynch, at Merrill Lynch, Lynch, right back in, in the fifties, and sixties, wow. yeah. Um, and just a, a sweetheart of a guy, and very intuitive. A great uh, amount of experience and just understanding of the business. And what I really appreciated uh, about Bob's perspective is he lived and you know didn't grow up in, but lived through. 
um, you know, the tumultuous times of the late 60s, the 70s, sure. and the, you know, I mean, horrendous markets. 73, right? 74 was horrendous. almost as bad as 08, 09. People don't risk, realize. Risk adjusted, absolutely it was, yeah. right? Um, no doubt about it. So when, you know, when you have somebody who's gone through that, there's a perspective that they bring. You know, I can read about it all I want, but when you're living it's it, it's completely different, right? So this is just a, a very unique perspective that um, you know that I've really appreciated and, and found uh, found useful. Steve Shobin, uh, who was started in the in the Merrill Lynch Technical Analysis Department, then le- left for Lehman Brothers in the mid '90s, who I eventually joined in the late '90s at Lehman, um, was equally as um, uh, as intuitive and. Uh, well, he started a little later. I think he started in 68. Um, had a very, very good perspective. And I worked more closely with Steve. Um, his ability to um, understand and really synthesize things qualitatively was mm-hmm. unmatched from anybody I've worked with since. Um, he just had a very good intuition about the market. And I was far more quantitative than, than Steve, but his intuition I had certainly learned a lot from uh, in, uh, in my years working with him. And a great guy. So beyond, hi, hi, Steve, if you're out there. <laughs> uh, beyond, beyond mentors, what other investors influenced your approach to the markets? Well, you know, without being specific about people, I think what's what's interesting about the business, and you know, at whether it was at Merrill or at Lehman or even at Renmac now, um, what I find is and very refreshing is it's the people that um, are very very successful who are interested in our work. Right. In other words, it's not the hotshot MBA uh-huh. who, you know, learned the same thing that everybody does. That technical analysis is just a bunch of bunk. You know, they're quote unquote smarter than the market, and they'll get it all figured out. Right. It's the seasoned professional with the scars and the battle wounds who are always interested in our perspective because they've seen it before. Right. They understand that there's something more to the business, and you know, you can get into this debate between art and science, and I get it, and I, I do think that technical analysis probably relies too much on art. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fundamental analysis relies probably too much on science. Um, We try to blend the two, right? Taking the, I understand there's something here. Let's try to quantify it and and do something around that. So, um, and look, even in fundamental analysis, there's an art to understanding where the kink in the hockey stick of growth is, right? Or what the difference between K and G in terms of the cost of capital and and the growth rate is. You know, so there's there's an art to everything that that's done. We just try to quantify it to the extent that we can. Um, and so, you know, when I look at the, the, the people that read our research and, and that I'm good friends with in the business, um, you know, they're people that I'm proud to have as clients. I mean, they're, they're, they're successful people. And I think you go back to the, um, you know, to the, uh, wizards of wall street books. And, you know, I learned a lot from Richard Dennis and his turtle system and just the way that they think about things. Right. And if Stan you can train people and, on it, it means it's quantitative and it's not purely an art. There has to be th- rules you can teach people. Yeah. And I think, look, as, as much as anything, what we try to do is we try to remain disciplined. Right. And I think discipline is, and, and look, people in the business understand that, but the, it's Dis- underrated amongst the investing public. I think, without question, it's. I think that I think it's underrated amongst the entire street. Is how 
how important and underutilized discipline is, right? And the the problem being is that when you quantify it, you also quantify what your loss is going to be, right? Mm -hmm. And so you know that you're not always going to be right, but you have to be willing to be wrong by this much. And most people say, I don't want to be wrong by this much, right? And so instead of quantifying it, they'll just do it by the seat of their pants. Some can do it successfully, some can't. I'd rather quantify it and say, hey, here's where I am. Here's my risk profile. Now, what can I do to maybe further mitigate that or... How do you know? How can I position it so that I'm I'm willing to accept that and move on, knowing that my what I call terminal wealth is going to mm-hmm. be far better than if I were to just index or something along those lines. The the quote I read this week, and I don't remember where, what book or what publication I read this was. We learn nothing from our winners; it's our losers that teach us. Without question. Uh, and, and there's those battle scars. You you don't get those. The worst thing that can happen to a newbie investor is. A winning streak. They they learn nothing from it, and they start to think they're yeah. they're brilliant. You mentioned uh, turtle traders and and market wizards. That's the perfect transition to the next question. By the way, we've had Schwager on. He's fantastic. Yep. And I don't know if you know Mike Koval's book, uh, yep. Turtle Traders. Yep. He he was really interesting. He's been entranced by Dennis's concept of let's raise them the way they raise turtles in these farms in Singapore, yep. which are used uh, as, a, as a food source. If we can raise turtles, we can raise traders. And, and let's, so let's talk about some of your favorite books. The first book I read in when I got into the business was Market Wizards, and it was absolutely fascinating. You imply um, you enjoyed the book as well. Yeah, I'll, at least two of them. I think there's three. Uh, yeah, I know I've read two. I might have Market read Wizards, third. New Market Wizards, and Hedge Fund Wizards. Yeah, I don't think I read one. Hedge Fund Wizards yet, but uh, so be it. Um, you know that that to me, I thought was uh, sort of bringing theoretical to reality, right? There's always the difference of you know up on the chalkboard it looks nice, but you know in the trenches, how does this really play out? And that was you know using both. You had fundamental traders there, you had technical traders there, you mm-hmm. had some that did a combination, uh, and obviously all did it. Uh, Discipline, by the way, which you mentioned, is a theme that runs throughout the wizard. It has book. to. Yeah, every it every single person right. talks about yeah. that. You absolutely have to have it without question. What what other books or standouts to you that e- either were influential or yeah, just that you really enjoyed a great deal? I mean, this is probably a little bit more controversial, but I will say that I've um, I've certainly um, internalized the thought process of the Austrian cycle uh, mm-hmm. of economics. Um, not that it's always right. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't think about it that way, but. In terms of sort of grounding yourself and understanding that trees don't grow to the sky, right. uh, you can't dig your way to China no matter how hard you try. I think it's just a a, a good understanding not only of credit, of money, uh, and the influence on the economy over time and the business cycle. No, no doubt about that. Um, any other books before we move on to our two favorite questions? I think any book on market history is fantastic. Just to again try to internalize, you know, and understand what Bob Farrell knew from living it, uh-huh. uh, the more you can understand the history of the markets, the more you'll find that things aren't uh, aren't changing. They're staying the same. Give me a few. I have a few favorites of my own. In I mean, that Reminiscence space. of a Stock Operator is classic, is classic no right? No doubt about that. Um, the same, around the same period that came out, you would appreciate this if you haven't read this. I'm fond of talking about Richard Wyckoff's How I Trade Stocks yes. and Bonds. Yep. 1923. If you swap out telephone wire for internet, it's like it was written yesterday. Absolutely. It's without, amazing. The more things change, the right, more they stay the question. same. I've recently started um, actually fondly reading uh, the minutes from Federal Reserve uh, meetings. Really? Because the same thing. 
Right. I mean you, old going way back. Oh, way back, way back. Some right. to the thirties, right? No uh, kidding. Yeah. Because you'll find that they're, you know, we like to think that they're they're driving silly cars and wearing wool suits in the summer and they, right. don't, they don't have a clue. I mean, they're very thoughtful, they're, as as of course they are, right? Well, and, the Lords of Banking really makes that clear. If you read. Lords of Finance, exactly, Lords of Finance. That, that yep. book really, if if you thought these are just a bunch of idiots yeah. flailing about, right. That'll disabuse you of those notions. And, and remember, at the time, their technology that they had was superior to anything that they had thirty years prior, right? right? So it, it's not like we're suddenly so much smarter because of all this stuff. It's right. just you know. There are certain things that are just unknowable, and 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 you find that in the business. So I think that's interesting. Um, there's a, a good book called um, uh, "A Nation of Deadbeats," which uh, Nation of Deadbeats, which is a um, just a very good history. I'm not a f- fan of the title, but it's a very good history of the U.S. Uh, economic cycles. Uh-huh. Uh, boom busts and takes us through with a lot of interesting anecdotes about the you know how the greenback became the greenback and and just you know it, some interesting anecdotes about the U.S. The, specifically. That title reminded me of a book I used for research some years ago about the 19th century banking in the United States called A Nation of Counterfeiters, and all these banks would issue these notes. Yeah, wildcatting, and, and yeah. eventually we'll walk away from them. Yeah. And, Eventually, that's why we ended up with a Federal Reserve. Yeah. So our last two questions, my favorite two questions, I ask all of my guests. So a millennial or a recent college graduate comes to you and, and says, hey, Jeff, I'm thinking about going uh, into finance. What sort of advice would you give them? Uh, just get experience. Get your feet wet. Get your feet wet. Get your feet wet. Uh, the second, and from from my perspective, um, I really don't hire people unless they're programmers. You, mm-hmm. you have to have a, just a solid understanding of programming because that's really where the power is, you know. Um, so, you know, if you're coming out and you're you're committed to the business and you want to show the commitment to the business as a you know as a young fresh graduate, uh, I'd say get enrolled in the CFA program as soon as you possibly can. Show that this is where you want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's more specific than than an MBA program. Um, in fact, uh, my uh, my alma mater, I, um, uh, you know, I really encourage the students to to get their feet wet with the CFA program while they're in college, and then you know just gives them a a, a leg up as they get out mm-hmm. um, to understand um, you know to prospective employers that hey I'm serious about this business and I've invested my resources and time to to do this, um, but programming history and just you know commitment get involved. And our final question. What is it that you know about investing today you wish you knew 20-something years ago when you began? That's a great question. I think um, instead of, I knew about this, but how about the appreciation of this, I think Mm -hmm. is probably a better way to think about it, is the absolute power of compound interest, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you know, you can look at the tables, you can do all the forward valuation calculations you want and see how you can turn $1,000 into something, you know, extraordinary. But the power of living for 20 years and seeing that work is astounding. And I think it's underappreciated by the masses. You, um, humans have a hard time conceptualizing long periods of time. And I'm not talking eons and billions of years right. on an astronomical level. Just your own lifetime. Hey, if I do this for 30 years, here's the net takeaway. My, my father-in-law was in town this weekend. Mm-hmm. He showed me a picture of his, his uh, Mustang. Uh, that was brand new when he bought it in 1965. And he said, I just saw it on eBay for a little under $100,000. <laughs> and so I you know, I did the quick math on it, and uh, it worked out to about a 
annualized rate of return. You would have done better in the market. Just right. But, you know, but that now, seemed if that like was a big, Ferrari, it seemed like a big, a little better. Absolutely. Little, but it seemed like better. a big number. And, you know, yeah. and that's the beauty of compounding. You just don't realize what, hey, 65 Mustang, you're talking uh, almost 50 years Pitures, ago, right. more than 50 right. years ago. Right. That That's uh, a fascinating thing. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for doing this Thanks, and being Barry. so generous with your time. I'm sure people, especially the technicians out there, are going to be fascinated by this. Uh, if you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see the other 90 or so um, uh, conversations we've had with various notables in the financial industry. I would be remiss if I did not thank my booker and audio engineer, Taylor Riggs, uh, for helping to organize this. Uh, my head of research is Michael Batnick, and Charlie Vollmer is our producer. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Look ahead. Imagine more. Gain insight for your industry with forward-thinking advice from the professionals at Cone Resnick. Is your business ready to break through? Find out more at ConeResnick.com slash breakthrough. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.